0: Well, good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us, I want to say thanks for joining us this morning. We're working through the book of James, and James, at first blush, it's it's a pretty intense book in certain sections, just like the passage we just read, that the tongue is a fire set... On fire by hell. And it it might seem like James is a pretty intense guy or harsh guy in his teachings, but it's important, and I've mentioned this before, but it's important to keep this before us, that James is first and foremost a pastor. And so he's writing this letter to go to his people and to other churches that he cares deeply about. And the... If you study the history, James, the church that James was the pastor over had thousands and thousands of people, and James was looking at the church, and he recognized that in the pews—I don't know if they had pews back then—but in the pews every week, there were people all over the map spiritually— You had people who, you know, had been following Jesus for years and their lives had been deeply transformed and conformed to his image. Then you had other people who were brand new believers, new in the faith, kind of learning. And then you had other people who'd been around the church for a long time, but their lives had not really been changed. And so James Hart, in writing this letter, is he wants to help people spot the difference between a Dead faith, you know, a faith that's professional alone versus a living faith, a faith that's transformed your life. The, the language James uses is true religion. He wants people to see whether or not their religion, their faith is true. And so in chapter one, he gives these tests. How can we determine whether or not our faith is real, our faith is true? So one of the things he says, one of the tests, he says, if you're, you have a living faith, then you will, you will work to keep yourself unpolluted from the world. You're not going to live like the rest of the world lives. You're going to pursue holiness, say no to a lot of things that a lot of people say yes to. So that's one of the tests. Another test he gives in chapter 1 is you're going to care for widows and orphans. That a sure sign of a living faith or one of the sure signs is that you care for the weak and the vulnerable in your midst. But the very first sign he gives, the first test of true religion, we read in verse 26 of chapter 1, James says, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. So the first test of the living faith is evidenced by how you steward words. Think about that. James is saying, how do you you know if someone's a Christian? How can you be sure? And you know, one of the things that, one of the kind of um, paradigms we use is, well, look at how they spend their time, their talent, their treasures. Like you can tell what someone loves by looking at how they schedule their lives, how they use their gifts and how they spend their money. And James is saying, that's all well and good, but you need to go even further. You really wanna know who someone is and what they worship? Look at their words. I'll tell you, this, this sermon's an intense sermon because the text is an intense text, and I warned you guys last week, so if you're here and you were here last week, I told you it was going to be a hard one, but this is a hard one, and the reason it's hard is because we talk a lot. The average person on an average day speaks about 16,000 words a day. Uh, some of you are, are like me and you, you don't like talking as much, and so I like to get it all out on Sundays and then talk very little throughout the week. Some others of you uh, probably are more in the range of thirty to forty to 50,000 words a day. But in the average, that's 16,000 words a day. That means in three days, you speak enough words to fill a 200-page book. Throughout our lifetimes, the average person will speak somewhere around four or 500 million words words, and that's just the words we speak. In addition to that, we have email. The average person receives about 100 emails a day and sends out about 34 emails a day, and so I don't know how that math adds up, uh, because, you know, you send, never mind. Uh, Just, uh, we have the emails, and then beyond that, we have text messages, Uh, and the average person, I think under the age of 40, sends and receives between 3,000 and 4,000 texts a month. Like we use words a lot and the book of Proverbs says, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. And you know, that's a haunting, haunting proverb for a preacher. When words are many, uh, sin is not absent. And so we're gonna press in to get to the heart of what James wants us to hear. And we're gonna look at this text under three headings, the power of words. The poison of words, and then the path to, you could say, purity and maturity. How do we grow in stewarding our words well? Starting with the power of words. I mean, the big theme James is trying to get across to us in this text is that words are incredibly powerful. So powerful, in fact, James says in verse 2, If you can master your words, then you've mastered life. Listen to what he says. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. that's an amazing statement. If you don't stumble on what you say, then you can control your entire life. And James isn't saying that uh, the only way we sin is with words. There's plenty of ways to sin without using words. What he's saying is how big of a task it is to tame the tongue. Like, it's such a massive task that if you can do that, if you can gain that kind of self-control, then everything else is easy. It's like saying, if you can climb Everest, you're going to have no problem traversing Jefferson Memorial. There's no harder task in our pursuit of maturity, no harder task than mastering our words. There's no more important task either because our words are the most powerful tools we have in life. And that's what James is trying to communicate when he talks about a bit in a horse's mouth or the rudder of a ship. Our words, they don't just flow out of us, they also direct us. And they direct the course of our entire lives. Why? Why are words so powerful? Because words are more than just sounds or utterances. Words, you know, our God's a speaking God who created us In his image, and our words always have power attached to them. Now, James gets to the the real heart of this power in verse 10 when he says, From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. And so, what he's saying here is, With our words, we have the power to bless, that is, to speak life, to bring life, to build up, to encourage or, or give and lend courage to other people. But with our words, we also have the power to curse. And to curse with our words, it's more than saying bad words, it's speaking words that steal life. That instead of lending courage, they rob people of courage. That instead of building up, they tear people down. Words have tremendous power because they're meaningful and they, they have power to bring life and power to bring Death. And if you're familiar with the scriptures, a lot of what James says in here, you know it's deeply rooted in the book of Proverbs and the wisdom literature of the scriptures, because that's where James spent a lot of his time. There are over a hundred Proverbs that speak to our speech. And I want to read three of them to help you see why words are so powerful. You know, why that, that phrase, sticks and stones, might break my, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, why it's such a profound lie. Proverbs. 15 tells us that the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. I'm sure every person in this room at some point in their life has been betrayed by another human being, especially betrayed with the words. Maybe they were lied about, misrepresented, maybe they were slandered, maybe they told him a secret and that person shared that secret with the world. Maybe it was just something very hurtful that was said Solomon says that can crush the spirit. At the same time, he's saying that there's a way to speak that's like a tree of life. That your words have the power to bring life, to bring healing into people's souls. Proverbs 12, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Again, we have that same image that a wise person with their tongue, they actually bring healing and wholeness to a person's soul. But fools with their tongue, they, they are like a, a sword, pierced like a sword. And that's a really good image. It's powerful because you can pierce someone with a sword. You can say something really hard or mean or awful, and then you can take it back. You know, You can pull the sword out, but the wound's still there. And the wound's gonna remain. This week, I heard from an awful lot of you uh, about the power words have had in your story, your life story, and your relationships. I got emails, I had people reach out to me, show up at the office and call me, of just there were times when you were a child and things your dad said were like swords that pierced you. And they, you know, he pulled it out, he eventually apologized. but they stuck with you. Last one, Proverbs eighteen twenty one: Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words can lead to death. You know, the CDC reports that the third leading cause of death in our country for 10 to 24 year olds is suicide. What's killing our kids and our students? Suicide. If you follow the news, you'll see story after story of teens or college students who end their lives not just because they were depressed or had a chemical imbalance in the brain. Many of them didn't have either of those things, but instead they were incessantly mocked, belittled, torn down by their peers and real life or social media. And they were bullied to the point that they would rather be dead than continue with the hurtful words. Words are powerful. I think this is a word for us because in the, the evangelical church, there are a lot of sins that we know are really bad and are scandalous. And then we think of sins, you know, with our words and our speech, and we, we would say, We know lying's wrong, and we know. Gossip's wrong and harsh criticism. We know all those things are wrong, but they're not like as big of a deal as adultery or murder, you know, or stealing from someone. And James is saying not so fast. Like your words are the most powerful thing you have. And when you step back and think about it, when you sin with the words of your mouth, you can do incredible damage. You can do more damage than you can if you steal from someone. He says, don't minimize it. Jesus himself said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Let that sink in. Those are Jesus's words. You know, in our day where talk really is cheap and, you know, you get fired up about something and you get online and then you, post something or you repost something and you just let it out there for all the world to see. And you know, once you post it, it never goes away in the rest of your life. That's part of your identity in the world. Jesus is saying, you're going to be held accountable for that. Every careless word. Why would he say that? Because he knows how powerful words are. You will be judged, justified. You will be condemned on the basis of your words. It's intense. Words are powerful. And you'd like to think that our words, you know, because James does say they can bring life or they can bring death. They tend to lean much more to the side of bringing death than life. They tend to, much more instead of building people up, tearing them down, they tend to be very poisonous. And in verses 6 to 8 of this text, James goes on a bit of a tear, giving us six vivid pictures, just back to back to back, of how destructive our tongues and our words can be. And I want to walk through these images because they offer different perspectives, but when you hold them together, they, they really impress upon you just how poisonous our tongues can be and how destructive they can be. Verse 6, James says, Our tongues, our words, uh, are a world of unrighteousness. A world of unrighteousness. Now, what he's communicating here is that there isn't just one way to sin with your words. There's countless ways to sin with your words. You can lie, misrepresent the truth to people. Now, it's breaking, you know, bearing false witness, which is breaking one of the great Ten Commandments. But think about what happens when you lie. Why is lying so bad? Because when you lie, you are distorting reality in the minds of other people. When you lie, you're bringing confusion into another person's life. If you say this happened when it didn't really happen and then other people base their decisions on that happening, you've caused them to kind of live in a false reality. We can lie with our tongues. We can slander, which is kind of a cousin of lying. Slandering is when we speak untruths or we shade the truth in such a way as to hurt another person. We don't have to say it to them. We just have to say it about them. Instead of thinking the best and speaking the best about other people, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Slandering is when we think the worst and speak the worst. It's when we try to dig up juicy things about the person that might be able to hurt them or hurt what other people think about them. This happens interpersonally, but it definitely happens in what we do publicly. There's gossip, which is a cousin of slander. Gossip's different than slander in that When you gossip, you could actually be telling, speaking truth, saying true things, but they're not helpful things. They're not necessary things to speak. And you're spreading other people's sins, other people's failures or faults or weaknesses. You're repeating them so that they can be amplified. World of unrighteousness, so lying, slander, gossip, there's what you could say harsh criticism or truth without love in Ephesians 4. Paul says, let us speak the truth with love, speak the truth in love. And some people love the first part of that, not the second part. They love to speak the truth, especially in the church. There's a lot of these people who they love, like I'm just here to tell the truth, but they do it without love and they're harsh and they're mean and they're cruel. And when you speak the truth without love, you're not actually helping the person because they're not going to be able to hear you. If someone just berates you and beats you down with their words and points out all of your flaws... It's really easy to drown them out or to be overwhelmed by them. Some people speak the truth without love. Some people try to love without speaking truth, and that would be flattery. That's another part of the world of unrighteousness. False praise. Trying to, you know, build people up with your words when it's just simply not true, which is really a form of lying in itself. Tongue's a world of unrighteousness. Not only that, it's a restless evil. So the imagery here is not only can we sin in multiple ways with our words, but we can sin all the time and we will sin all the time with our words because our tongues are restless evil. That we love to talk. Without even thinking about it, we, we lash out, we get defensive, we cut people down. Anyone else here ever say things and then wonder, why did I just say that? Where did that come from? Sometimes I'm like, how did that word... Get out of the prison of my teeth and my lips and escape into air. It's because the tongue's a restless evil. It's because it's almost instinctual sometimes what we say. So it's a world of unrighteousness. It's a restless evil. James goes on and he says it's a fire. It's like a spark that can set a forest on fire. You know, forest fires never made a whole lot of sense to me years ago. Uh, because, especially when people would die in forest fires, because it's like the forest is on fire. Don't go in there and you should be okay. You know, like it's a simplistic understanding. And I actually read a book called Young Men and Fire, which is a phenomenal book about a number of young men about 80 years ago uh, who died fighting this forest fire, the Gulch fire. And reading the book was really eye-opening because the reason people die is how fast the fires spread. The rule of thumb is that a well-ventilated fire with adequate fuel can double in size every one to two minutes. And so you start, and then an hour later, I mean, the fire is just you know, exponentially bigger. And we, we saw this a few years ago in the Smokies, that a kid was playing around with fire, started a fire as a little bit of arson, and over a two-week period, A fire hit that destroyed over 10,000 acres, which is 15 square miles, killing 14 people, injuring 134 others, and doing over $1 billion in damage. But just starting a little fire. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, what remains after a forest fire. I've I've been there, I've seen it, and it's, it's a wasteland. Everything's charred, and it's black, and nothing grows. It's almost like an alien planet. And what James says here is just like that kid in the Smokies who started a small fire and caused all this damage. What he says here is that a few sharp, careless, or calloused words can start a fire that can spread rapidly and do massive, maybe even irreparable harm to relationships, to families, to businesses, to churches, to lives. You know, and in some of your families, a fire, you know, a spark uh, was started years ago, and there's still relational fallout. There's words that were said that have actually drawn lines in the family. Some of you, in your business, it's like that. Some of you grew up in churches where that's been the case, that the fire spread. And because the tongues are restless evil, like it, the spark started, and then people are eager to fan the flames of it you ever noticed just something about human nature where we're a whole lot quicker to, just in our natural state, we're a whole lot quicker to spread false reports or bad reports or criticisms or juicy details that can hurt other people than we are to spread encouragements. I mean, I have people who will text me and call me, you gotta hear this, you gotta hear what happened. And it's never, this person did this tremendous thing and it was amazing. They served in this way. It's always. Did you hear about this? It's a fire. Not only is it a fire; it's a stain. James says that our words, our tongue, can stain our entire life. You know, someone once said, "I just heard this this week that that your reputation comes in drips, uh, but you lose it in bucketfuls." That it can take years to build trust and relationships, and a good reputation and you can lose it in a matter of minutes. I heard a pastor once say, and this kind of haunts me he said, I can speak, if I speak five wrong words at the wrong time, it will end my ministry. If I string together five wrong words at the wrong time, it can absolutely end my ministry. Why? Because it doesn't matter all the good stuff you've done. You say a few wrong things at the wrong time. A few hurtful things can stain your entire life. And we've seen this, right? And you guys remember when Mel Gibson was one of the most famous actors that everyone loved and he was A-list, high demand. And then he got drunk one night and left a voicemail with his either wife or ex-wife and said some really horrible things to her and then said some horrible things to other people. His entire life's been stained. Michael Richards played Kramer in Seinfeld. He was doing a stand-up routine and kind of went off the rails in the stand-up routine, said some very hurtful things. His entire life, course of his entire life was changed. His entire life was stained by it. I actually watched an interview with him and Jerry Seinfeld years later where he talks about he doesn't leave the house. It was a defining moment in his life and what he wouldn't give to be able to go back and take those words back. Words have the power to stain your entire life. James keeps going. It's a world of unrighteousness, restless evil, fire, stain. And then he says in verse six that not only is it a fire, it's set on fire by hell. So he's saying, unrighteous speech, it's not just wrong or sinful, it's demonic. That Satan, we like to think that Satan works in, you know, these spectacular ways, and he probably does. But when you actually go to the scriptures, who is Satan? What does he do? You'll find these words. He's a liar, a deceiver, an accuser. That the primary way that Satan works is through words, through our words. If you've paid attention to the news over the last couple of years, you know that Russia is actively working to destabilize our country. Like they don't, they're not even hiding anymore. I just read an article today about it. That what they're doing is anytime a tragedy hits, a school shooting or a police shooting or something, something significant hits in our country, the operatives go to work. You know, they unleash their bots that fill our Facebook feeds and our Twitter feeds and all of social media with just to the ex- with extreme statements. And so if there's a school shooting, you'll have extreme statements and they'll post on both sides of the issue. They don't really care where you come down on the issue, but they'll have some people saying, if if you own a gun, you hate kids and you should burn in hell. And you know, people will retweet it, absolutely. And then you have other people, you'll never take my gun from me, you know, until I'm dead and cold and lifeless. And then people will retweet it and they'll start a conversation and they'll amplify the divisions that exist in our country. And it works, right? When we can look at our society and say, we're more divided than ever. So it is with Satan. Satan's not content to just bring evil into our lives because the Bible's just filled with story after story of Satan meaning things for evil and God doing a judo move, you know, and turning it for good. Like that's, that's... ultimately expressed in the cross. Satan's not just happy with with doing evil. I think what Satan loves is not only does he bring the evil, he also wants, once the evils happen, to, to start the fire with our words, where we start biting and devouring one another and consuming one another. He wants to amplify our divisions. And just as the people who cluelessly retweet and interact with these Russian bots just as they are pushing forward the Russian agenda. So too, when we gossip and lie and slander, we're pushing forward Satan's agenda without even realizing it. Tongue is set on fire by hell. Lastly, it's a poison. Tongue poisons can poison everything. It poisons relationships, every lie, every piece of gossip, every harsh, thoughtless word. They're like arrows that we dip in a cup of poison and then fire at people. So not only do you wound them, there's poison, there's lasting damage. But what the scriptures teach us is that you can't handle the poison without poisoning yourself. That when we sin, we hurt other people, we dishonor God, but we ultimately hurt ourselves too. Think of the examples I just used or think of someone who is known to be a liar no one's going to trust them what about someone who's known to be a gossip no one's going to share their life with them think about someone who's just really harsh with their words they're going to struggle and be isolated in community something i hear often in the church is people saying everyone no one's friendly at church like i don't have any community i don't have any friends I go to these community groups and then they seem to fall apart. They don't realize, well, the reason you don't have any friends is because your your tongue's filled with poison because you're really harsh and you're mean. There's a healthy community group and you show up and you're abrasive and you're insulting and you have a self-righteousness about your tongue and then people just don't want to be around you. And I know way too many people that they live devoid of community because their tongues have poisoned relationships and ultimately hurt themselves. Words are powerful. They're often poisonous. Which leads to my last point. Okay, so how do we move forward? This is an intense passage. You know, I hope you're encouraged up to this point. Uh... I'm just preaching what James said. I'm like, couldn't you throw a little bit in here or there? Um, But it's actually interesting. (laughs) It's one of the challenges of preaching this text that James, he goes to great lengths warning us about the power and the poison of the tongue. But if you look closely, go back and read it, he doesn't really give any instruction or encouragement. He's not saying, your tongue is this way, so here are the three strategies to tame your tongue. He actually says in verse 8, it's it's kind of fascinating, actually starting in verse 7. He says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. No human being can tame the tongue. You know, if you go to SeaWorld, you can see killer whales playing jump rope. You go to the zoo, you can see elephants that tap dance. Like we can tame animals. And James is saying, but no one can tame the tongue. And so it's a little frustrating because he says, if you can tame the tongue, you can control your life. Things will go really well for you. And then he writes and discourages you. And then he says, but no one can tame the tongue. I wrestle with it. He doesn't say no one can tame the tongue. He says no human being can tame the tongue. He says we cannot tame our tongues by sheer Willpower alone. And if you want to steward your words with wisdom, it's going to take more than putting a dollar in a jar every time you say a bad word or pinching yourself when you gossip. And if you've been sitting here listening to the sermon saying, All right, when's you gonna tell me what I have to do? And when's you gonna tell me what words I shouldn't be saying anymore? It's just not that easy. That kind of stuff's a superficial solution to a very deep problem. It's a bandaid on a flesh wound. I mean, you can, I'm all for it. Go try as much as you want, but you're not going to heal your words that way. The problem's too deep. And so how do you do, how do you deal with a problem this deep? And the answer is you got to do deep work. You got to do deep work with the power of God's spirit if you want to heal your words. And I've got kind of two Two pieces of this deep work that I think needs to happen. Um, One's directly from this text. The other's more pulled from the scriptures at large. But the deep work, I think the first thing you need to learn to do is watch your words. And in saying watch your words, I'm not saying try harder. Try harder, that's great. Put forth effort. But when I say watch your words, I mean watch what you say. Pay attention. Listen to the words you speak. In verse 12, James writes, Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And what he's saying here is that our words are the fruit that flow out of the root that's in our heart. And so you're not going to have, you know, grapefruits growing from weeds. They grow from grapefruit trees. And so... to to just look at the words and think that, well, I'm going to change those. That's like trying to knock fruit off of a tree thinking you're going to change the tree. It's deeper than that. Words flow from the heart. Jesus said this, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in saying, watch your words. If you really want to know who you are, you really want to know the real state of your soul, look at what you say. I mean, there are a lot of religious activities you can do. There are a lot of books you can read. (laughs) You can memorize a lot of Bible verses. Again, all good things, but you really want to know who you are? Look at your words. Pay attention to what you say and how you say it. Pay attention to the tone you use. Pay attention to what you don't say. Are you kind? Are you patient? Are you compassionate? Are you encouraging? Are you empathetic? Are you gracious? Or are you defensive? Are you angry? Are you unstable? Are you bitter? Are you a perpetual critic? Are you a cynic? Are you cold? The words we use reveal a great deal about what's really going on in our souls. And so, I have an exercise, i got two exercises for you that I wanna hold before you. The first one in watching your words, I came across this test this week. It's kind of a diagnostic. And so I wanna encourage you sometime this week or in the next 10 10 days to pick a day or maybe pick like a four hour period in a day because it's a hard test. Uh, And I wanna encourage you to do five things. Number one, don't grumble or complain about anything. Number one, don't grumble or complain. Number two, don't criticize or tear anyone down with your words. Number three, don't gossip or spread bad information about anyone else. Now, I know as Christians, a lot of times gossip falls under the, uh, the realm of concern. And so you might be tempted in those four hours. I just have these concerns. I need to let someone know. Just wait till the next day. You know, and you can still share your concerns. But for four hours, don't share your concerns about anyone. Number four, don't be dismissive or defensive in any way. And so if if you're with someone in the church who chose a different day than you did, and so they are criticizing you or complaining to you, don't defend yourself. Don't minimize things. Just receive it. And then number five, intentionally speak words of encouragement. Seek ways to actually build people up with your words. So don't grumble, don't criticize, don't gossip, don't be defensive. Do speak words of encouragement with intentionality. And the reason I'm holding this before you is not because you're gonna do a great job at it, I don't think, You might be able to make it three or four hours. The reason I'm holding this before you is because you'll get some major data points about the state of your soul if you do this exercise. You'll actually learn, okay, what's really going on in my soul? Because if you notice a lot of complaining, why are you complaining all the time? It's because you got pride rooted in your heart. you got a sense of entitlement. If you notice a lot of criticism of others or gossip or defensiveness, that could be a real sign of insecurity. Why do you tear people down with your words? Because it makes you feel better. Because you've got some deep work that needs to happen in your soul around insecurity. If you don't speak many words of encouragement, ask yourself why, what's going on? Why don't I speak words of encouragement? Now, if you do this, you're certainly going to need encouragement because it's really hard work. It's like holding a mirror up to your naked soul and every flaw and imperfection is going to be held before you. But something I say here often is that growing in maturity as a Christian is radically predicated upon honesty. That you can't actually grow into maturity if you can't be honest about where you're at. It's hard work, but watch your words. And the only way you're going to be able to do that, my second application, is you've got to listen to a better voice. What I mean is the only way you can actually look into that mirror is if you've grounded yourself in the voice of God, the better voice all day, every day. You know, James writes this and we all read it and we think about ourselves, I tend, tend to think. But, you know, some of you think about other people as well when you read it. Um, but James is just talking about humanity. Like he's not just picking on one person. He's saying this is, this is who we are, this is what we do. And all day, every day, we're inundated with careless, toxic, destructive words in our culture, in our relationships with one another, for a lot of us, even in the voices in our own head, you know, you're never doing enough, you're never measuring up, you're such a failure. These words just play on repeat. And if the only words you hear all day, every day, are careless, toxic, and destructive, what kind of words are you going to speak? You know, you know that you become like the people you surround yourself with. And so, I have a friend who never thought she'd ever enjoy fishing in her life. Five years later, she loves fishing. You know why? Because she hangs out with people who fish. We could find all kinds of examples, but if you spend your life around people who gossip, what's gonna happen? You're probably gonna become a gossip. If you spend your life with people who are hypercritical and cynical, you're gonna become hypercritical and cynical. If you spend your days and your free time reading vitriolic posts on social media, or combative self-righteous news feeds, or watching combative self-righteous news channels, you're probably gonna become a contentious, combative, condescending person. What we hear shapes what we say because the voices we listen to shape our souls in deep and profound ways. And this is why I can't just tell you, hey, stop doing this and start doing this because it's soul work. And the soul work, I think, begins with learning to listen to the better voice, the voice of the Lord. The way we actually grow and change is when we ground ourselves in the voice, the only voice that, that truly matters. You know, our world's filled with bad news and bad stories all the time, but there's one great story. There is really good news. And that news is that no matter how much we misspeak, no matter how much destruction our words have brought, while there might be very real consequences on this earth, none of those things separate us from the love of God. And the scripture is filled with these amazing, outstanding promises that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we have peace with God, even when we don't have peace within ourselves. And if we're going to be a people who speak words of life, (laughs) We have to ground ourselves in the one who brought about life by his word. And when you do this, man, and actually I think you can make progress because when you know I'm forgiven and I'm loved, when you blow it with your words, when you blow up at your kids or blow up at someone else and you just, you know you blew up, you know you blew it. When you're grounded in the good word, you can say that was awful and I shouldn't have done it, but it's not the end of me. And you can actually go and say some of the hardest words in our culture, I am sorry. When you know that you're loved and you're safe and that God delights in you, you don't have to tear people down with your words because you're not finding your identity in what other people think about you. We have to be a people who listen to a better voice and this is my second real application for you. When I was a young Christian, I was taught to do a quiet time. Anyone else? Quiet times? Quiet time? That's a very evangelical phrase, isn't it? Like, quiet time. It was like 15 to 20 to 30 minutes of reading the Bible and prayer every day. And I did it for a lot of years. Um, and I kind of burned out on it. But my understanding of quiet times at that point was it was like an intellectual exercise. You need to get in and study the Word every day. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, to be clear. Like we should be a people who study and who immerse and you know, get into the trenches and get into the weeds. What does this word mean? And how does this relate? And how does this argument flow? I am all for that. But the older I get, the more I realize I don't just need to study the word. Sometimes I just, I just need to hear it. Not just sometimes, all the time. I don't need to get into the weeds. Sometimes I need the word to just wash over me. And I need to sit with it for 20 or 30 minutes and I think if we're going to move forward in how we speak, if we're not actually immersing ourselves in the word and just letting it wash over our lives, how in the world are we ever going to speak words of life? Can a salt pond produce fresh water? Of course not. You need fresh water to produce fresh water. And so my prayer for you, my, my encouragement to you this week is find some time, go to some of the great, encouragements in the Bible and just sit with them and read them and don't try to parse it all out. Just go read Romans eight, second half. It's my favorite. Go read it. Go read John three. Go read Ephesians one. Just let it wash, listen to the better voice and then you'll be able to speak a better word. as we move to communion, I'm grateful for communion every week, especially grateful for this week, because this was a hard text, uh, and it was hard for you guys, but if you'll notice, I like, can immediately sk- skipped over verse one, which says, not many should be teachers, because you're held to a higher standard, because that verse is between me and the Lord, doesn't involve you. Um, no, it's hard. It's hard, and it's convicting, and And it's almost like one of those movies where the last five minutes kind of unlocks things for you. I look at my life, I look at the life of the church and I think, man, how much of the drama and pain and hurt and relational problems that we attribute to other things are really because of our words, because of my words. I'm grateful for the Lord's table where we're reminded that even though our words are often destructive and poisonous, they don't define us. And when we take communion, we're reminded of Jesus' body that's broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. And when you actually come down, you'll hear someone speak a word over you, a good word, a better voice that says, this is Christ's body that's broken for you. And this is his blood that was shed for you. And that's the word we need to hear. And so if you're here and you're a believer, we encourage you to come forward. The way we take communion, we tear off a piece of bread and we dip it in the grape juice or the wine, whatever your conscience permits. But I pray that you can come and hear the good word from him so that you can actually do the work you need to do about the words in your own life. Let me pray.